You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'll, I'll welcome you back to your seats now if you want to find a way back to your seat. Thank you for greeting one another. If you want to open in your Bibles to John chapter 5, that's where we'll be today, John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40. And uh, if you didn't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of the hardback black Bibles that are on the back table. It'll be on page 890 there in those. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at River City, and uh, Dalton's done a great job of welcoming you so far, but just also want to say hello. Thanks for gathering with us today. What a joy and a privilege it is to be with you. And like I said... Grab one of those hardback black Bibles. Uh, we love to have God's Word in our hands as we're preaching it. And so want to make sure you have the availability to have a copy in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. So feel free to take that home with you if you want. Our focus today is on Bible reading. And we are in a series together called, uh, or sorry, a series about the rhythms of Jesus called Tired of Being Tired. Together we want to learn from Jesus, His rhythms, and embrace His rhythms in our age of distraction and one of the rhythms we see in the life of Jesus, his love and appreciation for the scriptures. And I really think one of the greatest reasons that we should take the Bible seriously is because Jesus did. One of the reasons we should view God's word as God's word is because that's how Jesus viewed the Bible. It is evident from Jesus' life and ministry, the way he talked about the scriptures, the way he quoted the scriptures... Uh, that he had a respect and appreciation for God's word. And one of the rhythms of Jesus then that we want to embrace together in this age of distraction is to know and to read our Bibles. When the winds of culture and desire want to blow us around and we feel untethered, God's word is like an anchor. He tells us about the way we should view his world and what he's doing in it. But there is a reality to this for us. Uh, most of us in this room... Uh, do not know or read our Bibles as much as we want to. There's a Barna study in 2014 that actually said 62% of Americans, not even just Christians, but Americans, wish they read their Bibles more. An even more recent study revealed that there's actually been a sharp decline in Bible reading over the last several years. You might have expected in COVID it had gone up. People had more time. They felt their need more acutely, but it actually has gone down. And so here's what, what that means for us. Most of us in this room are feeling guilty for not reading our Bibles as much as we think that we should, but still we struggle to do it. And so rather than heap more guilt on you this afternoon, that is not my goal. I'm not just going to tell you to read your Bible more. But I actually want to address how we view the scriptures, how we think about them, how we conceive of them in our minds, because that's actually what Jesus chose to address in our passage. And so how we view our Bibles might just change the way that we read our Bibles, and that might just change our very lives. And so let's read together from John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40. I'll read and you can follow along. It says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And I pray that we would receive it as a gift. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so now as we open your word, as we hear it preached, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help us. Would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, knowing the type of book that you are reading matters when you approach that book. What we know is that a cookbook and a grocery list and a children's story are not all the same thing. And if we read them in the same way, well, that's not going to work out very well. If you wanted to make an apple pie, then you'd want to get a cookbook and you'd turn to the recipe of the apple pie and then you'd follow the instructions there. Now contrast that with the grocery list. We, if, if we used cookbooks as grocery lists, that uh, really wouldn't serve us very well because grocery lists are built on what we actually need, not just what the recipe says. And so if we need flour, then we put it on the list. But if we don't need flour, it doesn't go on the list. If I need a couple of eggs, well, I'm not just going to get two eggs. I've got to get a whole carton, right? So they, they serve different functions. Not to mention, you probably need other things on your grocery list than just what you need for the apple pie. So you add things like coffee or paper towels or whatever else. Cookbooks and grocery lists are not the same and should not be treated the same. My kids have a book called How to Make an Apple, or How to Make an Apple Pie and See the World by Marjorie Priceman. And in this book, the market is closed. Someone wants to make an apple pie, the market is closed, so the character travels all around the world to get the supplies for her apple pie. Wheat from Italy, eggs from the elegant chickens in France, cinnamon from Sri Lanka, and so on. The book is a fun story, but it's not a recipe book. Now, there happens to be an apple pie recipe at the end of the book, but if you read the story like a cookbook, then you would end up making a very expensive apple pie that would have taken several weeks. But So the type of book that we're reading matters, right? Cookbooks are not grocery lists. Grocery lists are not kids' stories. And here why th- here's why that's important for us. Because the way that we read the Bible will make a significant difference or the way we see the Bible will make a significant difference in the way that we read it. According to Jesus, there is a way to read the Bible that brings life. And there's a way to read the Bible that will bring death. And so the primary message of the sermon for us this afternoon is that reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus brings life. In the end, we want to learn to read the Bible as one single overarching storyline that leads to Jesus. So here's our outline today. First, Bible reading that bears witness. Second, Bible reading that brings death. And third, Bible reading that brings life. In our passage, what Jesus says about the Bible is found within this broader argument that he's making. Now, I read a larger section of this text, and we're really just going to focus on verse 39 and 40 primarily. And in this section, he's talking to the Pharisees about his credibility as the Messiah, the one that God has sent to fulfill the promise that he's made to generations that he would save his people. In order to do that then, to prove his credibility, he begins to list witnesses to his divinity and his identity. And he's using this courtroom analogy, referencing these witnesses. If you were in a courtroom setting, if you had to go to court for some reason, then finding credible witnesses on your behalf would be a really helpful thing. 
Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he has witnesses. John the Baptist, from verses 32 through 35, he talks about. The, his own miracles in verse 36 is one of his witnesses. The father who has sent him is a witness in verse 37. The scriptures that bear witness about him is one of the witnesses in verses 38 through 44. And then finally, Moses in verses 45 through 47. Now, the focus of our sermon is on the scriptures themselves, and so we're not going to talk about these other witnesses, but we do need to see that in the context of this passage, Jesus is talking about the scriptures as a witness about him. In this way, the Bible is more of a testimony than it is an instruction manual. Bible reading is less about finding feel-good phrases to stitch on a pillow or print on coffee mugs than it is about receiving the good news about what God is doing in the world. It's less about finding arguments to defend our doctrine than it is about being captivated by the good news that God has sent Jesus into the world to save us. The way that we view the Bible makes a significant difference in the way that we will read it. When To Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, it became an instant classic, and it is what educator Charlotte Mason would call a living book, a book that communicates true things in a way that captivates people's imagination and their heart. And if you wanted to address matters of racism and injustice, you could talk about the statistics, you could talk about the theories, you could explain the history, or you could read To Kill a Mockingbird. Charlotte Mason argued that this is actually a better way to educate our kids through living books. And in a rare letter to the editor of the New York Times, Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, said of her book, Surely it is plain to the simplest intelligence that To Kill a Mockingbird spells out in words of seldom more than two syllables a code of honor and conduct, Christian in its ethic, that is the heritage of all Southerners. If you wanted to teach the history of racial injustice, you could get out a U.S. history book, and that would probably leave little impact on its readers. You could uh, address moral vision of honor and conduct through an ethics book, but that would most likely leave its readers unchanged. Or you could read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird. And here's why that matters for Bible reading. If you approach the Bible like an ethics book, or as a theology book, or as a book with feel-good phrases, if that's the primary way you approach the scriptures, then you'll miss out on reading the Bible for what it was meant to be. The Bible bears witness about Jesus. It is a testimony about God's work in the world. That is the primary way we are meant to read it. It will certainly require work to understand what it says. We need to learn to read narratives as narratives and poetry as poetry and other genres on their own terms. But as a primary impulse, as an overarching paradigm, Jesus wants us to learn to read the Bible as a witness about him. And doing so will have a massive difference for us. Jesus' greatest accusation against the Pharisees here is not that they read their Bibles, but that in reading the Bible that they missed Jesus. And this resulted in Bible reading that brings death. This is our second point today. Jesus is challenging them to see that by missing him, they are missing life. So he confronts them with this most penetrating statement in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Pharisees knew their Bible. They had a high regard for the scriptures, but they missed its central message. And through the Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish oral tradition, 
Pharisees were actually taught that if they got the teachings of the Bible into them, that they would gain eternal life. And Jesus is here to correct and confront that false assumption. Jesus is not critical of them for taking the Bible seriously, but that they had mistakenly believed that through intense study of words and syllables, that this would guarantee them eternal life. They missed the fact that the real value of the scriptures is that it gives a witness about Jesus. And this is not just a Pharisee problem. This is a human problem. We share this problem. We all approach the Bible with a certain set of assumptions. We all have a picture of the Bible in our minds of what it is when we sit down to read it. And some will read it like a dictionary, others like a moral code of conduct, and still others like a book about theology. But let's remember, if you read a cookbook like a children's story, then you'll completely miss the point. And in the same way, if you read the Bible like a reference book, then you'll completely miss the point. Unless we learn to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, then we will miss out on the life that's available to us. We will risk reading it in a way that brings death. And here are some examples of how we do this. And I'll be the first to raise my hand and admit that I'm guilty of these things as well. Okay, so these caricatures, I'm guilty of them. The first is Bible Doctrine Dan. Dan approaches the Bible like a textbook for theology. So he goes there primarily to answer his questions about theological matters. And as a result, the Bible becomes a reference book for him. His goal is to master every concept he can. And he thinks that by his knowledge of theology, he will be saved. Rule following Rita, she's similar to Dan because she thinks of the Bible primarily like a reference manual. But her questions are not theological, they are about rules and ethics and conduct. And she wants to know what rules she needs to follow so she can reinforce her own sense of moral superior, superiority over others. The third is Warm Fuzzy's Wyatt. Wyatt just wants to feel good. He goes to the Bible for inspiration and for comfort, and his goal is to leave his Bible reading time feeling better than when he started. And as a result, he views the Bible as a self-help manual, a source of motivation for him. And in the end, he only wants the Bible if he can have it on his own terms to fulfill his own desires. Fourth is checklist Chelsea. Chelsea doesn't even really know why she's reading the Bible anymore. She just was told once upon a time that she was supposed to. And so she has dutifully checked the boxes on her reading plan ever since. And fifth, we have gave up Gary. Gary tried to be like the others, but none of them worked. And so he gave up. He feels guilty about it sometimes, especially when that darn preacher talks about Bible reading in his sermon. He'll feel guilty for a day or two, but then, as his name suggests, he will eventually give up again. And I want us all to be honest with ourselves for a moment. We are these people. This is us. Some days I am Bible Doctrine Dan. Other days I'm Rule Following Rita. This is how I approach the scriptures sometimes. And the reason I think we end up like gave up Gary is because none of us, or none, none of these were meant to be the primary way that we read the Bible. It isn't that we don't want to understand theology. We should want to understand good theology. It isn't that we don't want to understand God's moral vision for the world. We will learn about those things in the scriptures. We do want to be inspired and we want to be comforted. And like checklist Chelsea, we, don't, we do want to build this habit of Bible reading and that can be hard sometimes. But if we are going to listen to what Jesus is saying here, then the key that will unlock the puzzle is learning to read the Bible as one single overarching storyline that leads to Jesus. When we learn to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it will bring life. 
Now, I'm going to unpack what that means, reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus more. But if you have gotten to the point where you feel like gave up Gary, then I want to take a moment to just try and encourage you. Let me give you just four practical words of encouragement to help. The first is you don't have to be perfect. When you think about the ideal Bible reader, what comes to your mind? What's the Instagram-worthy picture that comes to your mind of the ideal Bible reader? Is it someone who's in a room surrounded by books with four commentaries open, doing in-depth study every single time? Or is it someone sitting in a comfy chair in a quiet room with a fire blazing and just having a nice leisure time in the scriptures? Or maybe it's someone at a coffee shop, earphones in, listening to worship music, of course, 12-ounce Americano in a mug sitting next to them with their journal and a pen, and they're ready to read their Bible. Whatever the Instagram-worthy picture is for you, what I want to do right now is give you the permission to just erase it from your mind. Let me give you permission to stop trying to have the perfect quiet time. I have watched more people end up like gave up Gary because they're trying to be always perfect Pete. And in the end, they're paralyzed by their picture of perfection. The reality is that Bible reading is so often more like this. We sleep in too late. We get interrupted by our kids or our dogs or anything else. Our lunch break is shorter than we thought it would be, and so we don't have as much time as we thought. We get to the coffee shop, and there's no table available for us. So we read in our car or not at all, or we just get distracted as we're reading, and we end our time, and we think, ah, did I get anything out of that? So my first encouragement to you is just to stop being paralyzed by perfection. The second, and this is related, get the Bible however you can. This one flows from the first because if we give, our per give ourselves permission to not be perfect, then we will give ourselves permission to get exposure to the scriptures in whatever way we can. This has really helped me because I am someone who's been paralyzed by perfection. Until I just told myself that I was going to get my Bible reading in however I could. And so I did a reading plan on an app on my phone. And I could not consistently get the readings done in the morning before kids would get up and responsibility of days would begin. And so I got my reading wherever I could, in between meetings, on the bus, rocking my kids to sleep, anywhere that I could. I had, I had this misplaced assumption that because I was a pastor, I should be the guy in the study, surrounded by books with the four commentaries, doing in-depth study every single time. And if I wasn't every single time, then it wasn't worthy of my time. But the reality is that when I gave up my image of perfection and just committed to getting the Bible into my mind however I could, I freed myself from my own judgments. I actually got more Bible. So let me encourage you. Listen to an audio Bible on your commute. Read on your phone while holding your sleeping child. Read in the waiting room. Read on your lunch break. Get it however you can, even if it's only in five-minute increments. Third, be mastered by the Bible. Don't try to master it. It is common to evaluate the quality of our Bible reading based on whether or not we feel like we've learned something, whether we were inspired, whether we felt comforted. And we often come to the Bible with our own set of expectations. We want it to do certain things, and when it doesn't do what we want it to do, then we leave wondering, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with the Bible? But if we read our Bibles without these, these lists of expectations, then just allow it to be God's word. And let God do what he wants in our lives through his word. Then we'll be changed. The greatest impact I've ever had in my Bible reading is not one particular moment, but the accumulation of many little moments. Over the course of days and months and years of Bible reading, I am shaped by it. It helps me to see the world differently. 
We do not master the Bible, but over time, the Bible will master us. And fourth, read to see Jesus. This is really Jesus' entire point of this lesson to the Pharisees. See Jesus in the text. You can give your life to knowing the Bible, memorizing significant portions, studying historical context, even learning original languages. But if you miss Jesus, then you've missed the entire point. And so that brings me to point three, Bible reading that brings life. Jesus here is making a contrast between these two ways of reading the Bible. He confronts the Pharisees in our passage, and again, his primary issue is that they have rejected him. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They thought that they knew how to get eternal life. They thought that it would come through knowing the Bible. Like Bible Doctrine Dan or Rule Following Rita, they thought that life came by mastering the Bible. And Jesus confronts them for having missed the fact that the scriptures bear witness about him. The Bible is one single overarching storyline that leads to Jesus, and he is the key to unlocking the story. From the very first pages of the Bible, we can begin to see the way that God was writing one single story through dozens of authors over the course of centuries, telling one story about God saving humanity from our rebellion and our sin. And in the end, there are two ways to read the Bible. You can read it through the lens of Jesus, or you can read it through the lens of the law. The Pharisees read it through the lens of the law. They saw everything as conditioned upon obedience to the law. Ray Ortland, a pastor and author in Nashville, said this about how we read our Bible. If we read the Bible as law, we will find on every page what God is telling us we should do. Even promises will be conditioned by law. But if we read the Bible as promise, we will find on every page what God is telling us he will do. Even the law will be conditioned by promise. The lens through which we read the Bible will change everything. And let me give you an example of how this will change our Bible reading from a well-known story. The story of David and Goliath is perhaps the best known of the entire Bible. And in it, a young and obscure shepherd boy shows up to the battlefield to bring food to his brothers. But when he arrives, he hears about Goliath, this giant Philistine who is mocking God and God's people. And the rest of the army, they are petrified of Goliath. So day after day, he comes out to taunt them. And the Israelite soldiers refuse to meet him in battle. Well, David will not accept this. How can they allow this giant Philistine to mock God and God's people? And so David goes to the king and he offers to fight Goliath. He is confident that God will defend his own name. And so after some convincing, David is allowed to meet Goliath on the battlefield with nothing more than a stick and a sling. And Goliath mocks David, thinking that he had won. This little shepherd boy is going to face me and David slings a stone at Goliath's head and kills this giant. Now, if we read this story through the lens of the law, then when we read about young David showing up on the battlefield to save Israel from the giant, we will think that we need to be David. We need to conquer our giants. These caricatures I gave earlier, we'll read it like this. Rule following Rita will think about how it is our moral obligation to defend God from the skeptics around us. Warm, fuzzy Wyatt will be inspired to go and conquer the giants in his own life. Bible doctrine Dan will be thinking about the way that human responsibility and God's sovereignty go together. And he'll be wondering about his own responsibility in conquering his giants. Checklist Chelsea is just happy that it's a good story for the day. And gave up Gary, well, 
he gave up, right? So he didn't read about David and Goliath that day. Each of these responses are primarily through the lens of the law, asking themselves about what they need to do. But if we read through the lens of promise, if we read through the lens of Jesus, then we will see that another young man born in obscurity and raised in humility has come to save us. And it is not a giant Philistine mocking us, but it is the evil one who wants to sing condemnation over you, mocking you and God. We are not David stepping onto the battlefield. We are the soldiers feeling defeated and incapable of doing anything about it. And let's be honest, when we're feeling low and needy and capable of conquering our own sin or overcoming the difficulty that's in front of us, we are more like the soldiers than we are like David. We need a savior, not to be told to become our own savior. Jesus came as the better David. He did not come with armor and sword. He came in humility and sacrifice. He was mocked on his way to the cross, and the battle appeared lost. But in fact, it was never in doubt, and Jesus rose victorious from the grave. The soldiers did not conquer Goliath, but through David's courage and his victory, they no longer stood paralyzed on the battlefield. They followed him into the battle for victory. Jesus goes before us. We do not remain paralyzed in the face of our own sin and suffering, we follow Jesus. The promise that Jesus has already won the battle gives us courage because he won the battle. We don't have to. The lens of the law will lead you to ask what you need to do. The lens of promise will lead you to ask what God says he has already done. And here's what I know. I struggle to keep the lens of Jesus as primary in my mind. It's easy to start reading the Bible through the lens of the law I was convicted of this, even just this past week. I was reading in Psalm 51, and David says that God does not desire us to do things, but to acknowledge our need. He does not desire sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart. We will never read the Bible through the lens of promise if we do not see our need for God's promise. And I get myself into trouble when I start to think that I have this all figured out. When we start to love the law because we think we're good enough, at the law to make ourselves feel better than we're missing Jesus. His love and his promise are not conditioned on whether we can do well enough on the law scorecard. And we will not come to him for promise if we do not see our need. But when we see our need, when we see God's promise, we will learn to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.